This morning's Bible reading is Psalm 58. We're continuing our Psalms for the Summertime series, and so we will look at Psalm 58 together. That's found on page 893 in your pew Bibles. Before I read that, let's ask the, for the illumination of God's Holy Spirit using the prayer that's printed in your bulletins. Let's pray together. Lord, open my eyes that I may see wonderful things in your book. Lord, open my heart that your truth would be my joy and my delight. Lord, open my mind that you would show me the way to live. Guide me by your spirit in Jesus' name. Amen. So we're continuing our songs for the summertime series and I think I've said multiple times that the, that the last few sermons in this sermon series are psalms that I would call formative psalms. So these are psalms that um, the Holy Spirit uses to form us in different ways. And each of these psalms forms us in different ways. Um, each of them are, are like a tool in the Holy Spirit's hands. And when we pray on them and we meditate on them and we study them, uh, the Holy Spirit works on us and gives our lives a godly shape. And each of them... Um, comes from a different angle and does works on us in a different way. And, and so today we're going to look at Psalm 58. And before we get a sense of how that psalm shapes us, let's, let's imagine a context for this psalm. Let's imagine that you're reading this psalm at your Sunday devotions. Okay, you've just had a, a big traditional Sunday afternoon meal. You had the pot roast, and you had the mashed potatoes, you had the green beans, and you, that's all done, and then you had apple pie with ice cream on top, and that was really good, and you had some friends over, and you're just all feeling good and happy, you had a good time, some of the guys are unloosening the top button on their, on their pants, and everybody's comfortable, and, and now it's time for devotions, and you, you've been going consecutively through the Psalms, and so you open up and you read Psalm 58, and this is what it says. Do you rulers indeed speak justly? Do you judge people with equity? No, in your heart you devise injustice. Your hands mete out violence on the earth. Even from birth the wicked grow astray. From the womb they are, like, they are wayward, spreading lies. Their venom is like the venom of a snake, like that of a cobra that has stopped its ears, that will not heed the tune of the charmer, however clever that enchanter might be. Break the teeth in their mouths, O oh God. Tear the fangs out of those lions. Let them vanish like water that flows away. When they draw their bow, let their arrows fall short. May they be like a slug that melts away as it moves around along the ground, like a stillborn child that never sees the sun. Before the pot, your pots can feel the heat of the thorns, whether they be green or die, the wicked will be swept away and the righteous will be glad when they're avenged. When they dip their feet in the blood of the wicked, the people will say, surely the righteous are rewarded. Surely there's a God who judges the earth. This too is the word of the Lord. So that would change the mood at the meal, right? 
that would be an eye-opener. It would get people's attention. Um, psalm 58 is not an easy psalm. It's a psalm that feels very much out of place where, with a, a nice West Michigan, nice society. It's a psalm that expresses extreme anger. It's a strong that is literally praying, praying for violence. I mean, that's what's happening. There are prayers for violence in this psalm. It's a psalm that expresses something close to hate. And none of those are the kinds of emotions or the kinds of feelings that um, we try to cultivate devotionally. Break the teeth in their mouths, Lord. When we dip our feet in the blood of the wicked, we'll rejoice. What is the Holy Spirit trying to form in us through words like this? And that would be a hard question if this were the only psalm where this sort of thing happened, but it's not. There are multiple psalms like this, probably 10, a dozen, many verses in the psalms that speak this way. They're a part of a class of psalms we call the imprecatory psalms. The imprecatory psalms. They offer imprecations. What is an imprecation? It is a wish for harm. It is a kind of curse that you put on your enemies. In this case, those imprecations are on God's enemies. And as I said, they're, they're, they're all over the book of Psalms. Psalm 3, break the teeth of the wicked. Psalm 55, may death take my enemies by surprise. Let them go alive down to the realm of the dead. In essence, let them be buried alive. Psalm 69, may their eyes be darkened so they cannot see. May they be blotted out from the book of life. Psalm 109, doesn't just wish harm on the enemy, it wishes harm on the enemy's children. May their children be wandering beggars and may no one pity them. And then finally, Psalm 137 that Mary and Patrick uh, sang earlier, they sang the beginning of it. You'll notice that Dvorak did not include the end of the psalm, which has probably the hardest imprecatory line in all of scripture when it says this, daughter of Babylon, Happy is the one who seizes your infants and dashes them against the rocks. There's more where that came from. I, mean, I could read more. I mean, that's the worst. I think that's the worst or hardest imprecatory line in all of Scripture. But there's, it's, it's, there's a lot of them. And those of you who've studied the Psalms, you probably know this. You know that those imprecatory Psalms are there. But if you're not a person who actively studied the Psalms, if your only exposure to the Psalms is when a minister does devotions or when someone else does mealtime devotions, you might not even know that those Psalms are there because we avoid them. We don't like to preach on them and we don't like to use them from devotions. You could completely miss them because we favor other parts of the Psalter. So why did the Holy Spirit put these really difficult poems, these really difficult lines in the Psalter? How can these these words, this anger, possibly be shaping us in a positive way? Well, I think the answer to that question, and there is an answer to that question, I think the answer to that question begins with a thing we've been saying all through this series, that one of the things that's amazing about the book of Psalms is that it encompasses all of human moods. All the feels that you can feel are in the book of Psalms. John Calvin says that the book of Psalms is like the anatomy of the of the human soul. Here's a quote. There is not an emotion of which one can be conscious that is not here represented as a mirror. 
Or rather, here the Holy Spirit has drawn all the griefs and the sorrows and the fears and the doubts and the hopes and the cares and the perplexities with which the minds of men and women are wont to be agitated. So why are the imprecatory psalms in the Bible? Because they deal with an emotion, a feeling, with which the minds of men and women are wont to be agitated. They deal with a feeling that all of us feel and all of us struggle with, and that is the feeling of anger. Extreme anger. Sharp anger at someone who's hurt us, or hurt the people we love, or someone out there who we think is doing terrible damage to the fabric of society and destroying the peace of this world. These psalms are an expression of that kind of sharp anger. They tie into that anger that we all feel every day. Sometimes our feeling of anger are, are relatively small. We're sitting at the stoplight. We're about to go when it turns green and some car zips right in front of us. Three seconds after the light turned red, and then a little voice in our head said, man, I wish there was a cop here to nail that guy. <laughs> that, my friends, is an imprecation. Minor league, but an imprecation and an appropriate one. Sometimes those feelings of anger are much much larger. Someone is bullying your child at school. And your child, who used to be this joyful, carefree kid, has suddenly become just so full of anxiety, and it keeps happening, and you try to address it with this kid, you try to address it with this kid's parents, and they laugh it off like, this is just how it is when you're in middle school. And you find yourself getting angry, really angry, and if you would Admit it to yourself, sometimes those angry thoughts turn towards violence. Every day stuff happens that makes us angry, sets us off, makes us mad. And that's not necessarily a bad thing, right? Anger is not in and of itself sinful. God gets angry. This book is full of stories about God getting angry, God showing wrath. If God shows wrath, it can't in and of itself be a bad thing. But this book is also really clear that though it may not be bad, it is very, very dangerous. Anger, if it goes the wrong way, is one of the seven, classically, one of the seven deadly sins. So one of the root sins, the sins that can cause the most destruction. And even though in and of itself it's not a bad thing, you know, Paul and others, Paul in Colossians 3 says, get rid of all anger, get rid of rage, get rid of malice, because he knows how dangerous it is. One of the huge challenges of any life is how do you manage your anger? How do you feel this thing that we all feel in a non-sinful way, and keeping? how do you keep your anger from, from walking down a path that ends up going towards this deadly, destructive sin? Really important. What path does your anger take? Now, people offer different answers to this question or different suggestions of what you should do with your anger. There are many who say that you should use your anger as a source of power, that your anger can be a source of power. And here's, here's what I mean by that. Somebody does something terrible to you, you remember that thing. You don't forget it. You remember that terrible thing, and then you, you focus on it. You fixate on it. You let that, that thing, that hurt, become a kind of a fire and then that fire will move you to action, action against this injustice. A kind of outrage is going to deal with the thing that they did. So 
remembering, intensifying, getting this burning fire, acting. Now that approach gets some things right. It takes injustice seriously. It takes sin seriously. When you take that approach, you don't just let sinful things, unjust things slide by. You recognize that they need to be dealt with. And that's certainly a biblical truth, right? God, in this book, calls us to deal with injustice, to deal with sins, to fight those things. But overall, this is not the approach that Scripture says we should take with our anger. In fact, I would argue that this is exactly the wrong approach. This intensification approach is exactly the approach that will lead your anger to become a deadly sin. If you follow this intensification approach, not only will you feel anger, you will become an angry person. You won't just be a person who gets angry once in a while. Anger will start to be something close to the center of who you are. It will become your story. So instead of your story being the story of hope and grace and love and all the fruits of the Spirit that are ours in Jesus Christ our Lord, the story of your life will be that thing that that person did to me or did to us. It will become the animating force in your life. We are all called to feel angry sometimes and we're all called to act on it, but it should never, our anger should never become the animating force of our life, the thing that fixates us, the thing that animates our being. And why would you ever want such a thing? Why would someone choose to make anger their activating energy? Well, people do choose it, and the reason they choose it is because it gives you power. There is real power in anger, right? This is not false hope. This is, if you want power, anger will give you power. Anger will make you feel vindicated. Anger will make you feel righteous. I remember um, driving in my car and listening to ESPN radio, and one of the commentators uh, was an ex-football player. He'd been very successful, had a long career. He was one of the hosts of the show. I wish I could remember who it was. I tried to find it, couldn't. But this, this guy had had a long, successful career, and it, he was talking about what made him successful, and he basically said what the, his chief motivator as he went through his professional career was anger. That what he did was he would focus on grievances, things that people said, things that he thought were acts of disrespect, and he would internalize those, and he would use them as motivation to win, to become great, to be successful. This is a pretty common thing among professional athletes. Michael Jordan did this all the time. And he was talking about that, and he, he gave a specific example. He said, man, when I was in sixth grade, I told my teacher, my middle school teacher, that I wanted to be a professional football player. And she said to me, oh, I don't know about that. You know, it's not very many people make it into the professional ranks. You might want to think about something else besides just professional football. That seems like a really reasonable and wise thing to say, doesn't it? He decided to take it as a grievance. And he said, all through my middle school and all through high school and all through college and even until I got to the pros, I'd have her face in front of me. I'd be thinking about her face and I'm going to show her. I'm going to prove that she was wrong. And even as he talked, and he's like a 40-something-year-old man now, you could hear that anger. You could hear that anger boiling up inside of him. Now, did that anger give him power? Yeah, he had a successful career. But at what cost? What good is it for a man to gain the whole world, but to end up with an angry soul? Or to quote Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount, if the light within you is darkness, how great is that darkness? 
So a word for all young Christian athletes here and coaches and parents who have kids in athletics or grandparents who have kids in athletics. That's a pretty common style of motivation these days, negative motivation, bulletin board material they call it, grievances. I don't think it's a good thing for Christians to use. It may seem like a small thing, but you're training your kids, you're training the next generation in a bad spiritual habit. You're training them in dark arts. You know what it's like for Tolkien fans here? It's like the ring of power in the books, right? You take the ring and it actually gives you power. It makes you strong. You can conquer your enemies, but then it eats you up. It makes you a wraith. Now, I've used a trivial example here, relatively trivial, sports success. But if you widen this out and if you think about world history, it's a simple truth that people who, who follow this path, groups of people, tribes of people who follow this path of focusing on a grievance, intensifying it so that they can act on the outrage, they are responsible for some of the most destructive things in human history. This is a deadly sin when it walks down that path. Now, if that's not the godly way to deal with your anger, that's a bad way. What is, what is the godly way and how did the imprecatory psalms help us find that way? Well, let me say a few things about that to close. First, for all the, the difficulty of the imprecatory psalms, they have the virtue of expressing our anger. They get it out there. They admit that it's a natural feeling, okay? So just as a, a vehicle of expression, they don't let us internalize it. They help us admit that we're angry. So that's one good thing. Second, they say that they help us see, as we've already said, that anger isn't necessarily bad. That if you feel sharp anger, that sometimes that even can be a good thing. Eugene Peterson has written somewhere that in a world of radical evil, if you get really, really angry, that's a sign that you still care, right, in this world. Sometimes our, our, our real anger is a sign that we still care. Third, and now we're really starting to see where this path deviates from the one I described before. The imprecatory Psalms teach us to take our anger, express it, but then bring it to God and give it to God. They teach us, instead of internalizing it and putting it in ourselves, they teach us to pour out that anger on God. And they specifically do that in two ways. They teach us to give our memories of what terrible thing that person has done to God, and the responsibility for the action to God. Psalm 137, the psalmist says, after saying that terrible thing I said earlier, Lord, remember those people who did this to us. So the psalmist is realizing it can't just be his anger and his re remembrance that is going to be the source of righteousness and justice here. He needs God to remember. He gives his responsibility for remembering to God, so he doesn't have to intensify his memories. He doesn't have to walk down that path because God knows too, okay? He shares the memory with God. And then, of course, he also shares the responsibility for bringing justice. Psalm 58, Lord, you break the teeth of the wicked. You tear the fangs out of those lions. You bring justice. The imprecatory Psalm's way of doing things, we don't intensify, we don't act, we let God remember, and we let God have the final word. And then look what happens. Look at the last verse of Psalm 58. By the end of the psalm, despite all the terrible things he says, the psalmist says, then people will say, surely the righteous are still rewarded. Surely there is a God who judges the earth. 
At the end of the psalm, after expressing himself, he lets God be the final judge. He makes room for God's wrath in the words of Romans 12. He acknowledges that scripture consistently says, vengeance is mine, says the Lord. He still remembers. He still acts for justice in this world. But the final justice and the final remembrance he gives to his God. Because, and this is really important, God is way better at anger than you are and than I am. You sometimes hear Christians, and actually you hear this a lot these days, justifying their anger and their expression of it by saying, well, hey, Jesus got angry. I mean, Jesus got really mad in the temple. He turned over tables, so I should be able to get outraged like that, and I should be able to turn over tables. Well, yes and no. Jesus is better at anger than you. <laughs> right? I trust Jesus to see the offense and to act appropriately. I'm not sure I trust you, and I know I don't trust me to do the same. I don't have that level of insight. Our anger should lead to action. We should not forget the sins of these worlds, but we must always leave room for God's wrath and have humility about our final ability to judge. Fourth and finally, the imprecatory psalms, as I've described, start us on a path where we give our anger to God, leave room for God's wrath, but they don't finish the path. We're New Testament people. And to see where the path of that anger should finally lead, you've got to go to the New Testament. The psalmist shouts this angry prayer to God. All the psalms say these hard and terrible things. How does God answer these hard prayers? Psalm 137 says, Blessed are those who dash your children against the rocks. Whose child gets dashed against the rocks? Whose child? God's child, Jesus, dashed against the rock of our sins and our injustice. He's the answer to Psalm 137's prayer. Psalm 58 says, hey, when we, when we bathe our feet in the blood of the wicked, we'll rejoice. Whose feet get bathed in blood? Whose feet? Jesus. See from his head and his hands and his feet, sorrow and blood flow mingled down. And when we bathe in that blood, what happens? What happens to us? We are washed clean from our injustices and our sins. See, when you pray these psalms all the way to the end of Scripture, you begin to realize that when we call on God to destroy our enemies and act against injustice, ultimately, the finger gets pointed back at ourselves. We're God's enemies too. Romans 5.10, while we were God's enemies, while we were God's ekthroi in the Greek, while we were God's enemies, we were reconciled to him through the death of his son. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. All those prayers end up pointing at us too, and God answers those prayers, and he answers them by sending his son, and Jesus dies on the cross for all our sins and all our injustices, and when he's dying, he doesn't finish with an imprecation, he finishes with, forgive them, Father, they don't know what they're doing. The journey with the imprecatory psalms starts with these hard words, but it ends at the cross, where we see our own guilt, and we see that we have received grace upon grace upon grace. There will be lots of stuff that will make you angry this week. 
May you act on it appropriately. May you remember it appropriately. And may your anger always be expressed in the light of the grace of the cross of Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. Lord God, so often when we look at our world and look at ourselves and go to your book, your book brings us to the cross and to its power. So much of our hope and so much of the way we live our lives and think of ourselves, um, that's where we go, Lord, to your cross. We cling to it. We need it. Lord, bring justice to this world. Thwart the powers of evil. There's so many people in this world who are suffering under the power of evil and the power of evil. We do pray, Lord, that the power of wickedness will be broken in this world and that it will be done by you. And we ask that you do it quickly. And until then, give us wisdom and patience and confidence that you will save. Amen.